0: The amount of money spent on the energy transition away from fossil fuels is probably the biggest endeavor that humanity has ever embarked on. And it's the single biggest amount of money spent on one issue. It's the biggest waste of money ever.
1: Welcome back to another episode of El Podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Lars Schernikau. Who is a german energy economist commodity trader and is the co-author of the book the unpopular truth about electricity and the future of energy let's jump right into the first question many people in north america hold germany and other european nations up as an example when it comes to renewable energies yet you say that only about five percent of all energy produced in germany is from wind and solar. Is Germany and other European countries really a model that other nations like the United States should try to emulate?
0: Well, thanks, Jesse, for the question. It's actually a very important and good question. Let me try to answer this a little bit differently. Germany, my home country where I was born and grew up, has always been known for technologically very advanced in many aspects, and also in terms of energy supply. So Germany, after the war, has really invested a lot of money in a very secure energy system. Germany was always a country with the highest security, reliability of the energy system. However, the energy transition, so-called energy transition, probably started over 20 years ago. And since then, over a trillion euros has been invested in this. And of course, a significant amount of so-called renewable capacity, mostly wind and solar, was installed. With that came a huge cost and price increase. So European um, or actually worldwide, I think Germany and Denmark are leading in terms of electricity prices. The question is now, is that a role model you want to be at, right? That's a world want to copy a model which has the highest prices, which necessarily is because it has the highest cost. And I think that is a key point to consider in our discussion today about the cost of the so-called transition. I personally believe Germany should not be copied because the transition to wind and solar will always dramatically increase your cost of energy, your cost of electricity. And secondly, it will reduce the reliability of your energy system, a significant aspect. So for that reason, I don't think it's a good role model. In terms of trying to advance, in terms of trying to think of new ways, of course, right? you want to continue to invest in cleaner better ways of producing electricity in every way possible but to do so you should in my view not do this at the expense of the people of the population which is to higher cost number one and through more reliability number two
1: in your book the unpopular truth about electricity and the future of energy you say quote despite the trillions of US dollars spent globally on the energy transition the proportion of fossil fuels as part of the total energy supply has been essentially constant at around 80% since the 1970s, when gross energy consumption was less than half as high. Also in Europe, fossil fuels share is still about 70%. So the question is after trillions of dollars have been spent on renewables, why has nothing changed? Well, I wouldn't say nothing has changed, but it
0: appears from the outset on a large scale that very little has changed. Maybe you allow me to share my screen, show you an example of that, just to give you a sense of what is actually going on globally in the energy system. So on the left side, you have the total energy system worldwide, is the 2021 numbers, roughly. So it's whatever, the 170,000 terawatt hours of total primary energy, it's just a number, but it's a big number. (laughs) You can see here this 80% of primary energy coming from fossil fuels, which is an order of importance, oil, coal, and gas. Then there's 20% roughly of nuclear and other. Now, when you think about this primary energy, this energy is used for four main purposes. Number one, to produce electricity. About 40% of this primary energy goes into producing electricity. And then there is heating our buildings, there's for transportation, and then there's industrial operations. So it's 40, 20, 20, 20, right? You can see that. Now, when you look at the electricity portion, the primary energy that you then convert to electricity, a certain amount of energy is lost. So after the losses, you then have 50% of electricity comes from coal and gas and 10% from nuclear. So 60% 60 roughly comes from coal, gas, and nuclear. Now, Mm -hmm. wind and solar in 21 was 3% of primary energy worldwide and about 10% of electricity worldwide. Now, when you look at the history of total primary energy, you can see that, you know, 200 years ago, we were all green. Like we were all burning biomass and wood, and Europe did not have many trees left, and neither did the US, by the way, in the first years or in the North America. Then the Industrial Revolution came, coal was invented. Through that, we had a huge impact of our available energy to ourselves. Then the oil age started, the gas age started, and then nuclear came on. You can see that basically by today, that 80% comes from fossil fuels because of the significant growth. In fact, this 80% has been rather constant for the past 40 years because the contribution of wind, solar, and others, even though it grew, there's relatively so little because the total pie has been continuing to grow so much. And now you can think of it the future, right? So the future will be, so by the way, coal made up, made up now roughly one third, a little bit more than one third of electricity. And over one fourth of primary energy, that's just coal, which is a market I spend a lot of my time in. Now, the question would what happens in the next 28, 30 years, and there's expectations that will continue to grow by 50%. Why 50%? Because the energy per capita used or required will increase by about 20% as expected, because as poorer nations become richer, they will require per capita more energy. And secondly, there's a population growth of about 25% in those 50 years. And that in total gives you a 50% growth in primary energy. Let it be 40%, 45%, whatever it is, but roughly it gives you a sense globally what's actually happening in the world of energy. And that maybe also explains what you were just saying before, that why has not much changed. Actually, a lot has changed. We have so much more energy available to us, but that's not possible, hasn't been possible without a significant growth in oil coal and gas those three main fossil fuels but again we need everything we need nuclear we need hydro give me everything you can that's reliable and affordable because energy is the basis for human development so you can only become healthy you can only live longer if you have access to reliable and affordable energy that's a key building block for life there's food and water and there's energy and those key things if they're not there you're in
1: trouble I'm not sure if you know who Chamath is, but he is a billionaire investor who has a venture capital fund. I was watching a podcast with him, and he says that he thinks in our lifetime, we will see the first trillionaire, and he thinks that it will be in the energy sector. There's a quote from your book that made me think of him, and in, in your book, you say, in order to save the climate, and of course, that's in, in quotes, investment in the energy transition away from fossil fuels has reached multiple trillion u.s dollars annually boston consulting group estimates three to five trillion dollars per year totaling 100 to 150 trillion dollars will be required from now until 2050 you also say that McKinsey estimates a higher cost for net zero by 2050 totaling 275 trillion dollars or 9.2 trillion per year One, how do these consulting groups actually calculate these insanely large, almost unfathomable amounts of money? Secondly, where does this money come? Thirdly, do you think Chamath is correct and that we will see a trillionaire from the energy sector?
0: I always say that the amount of money spent on the energy transition away from fossil fuels is probably the biggest endeavor that humanity has ever embarked on. And it's also the single biggest amount of money spent on one issue, right? And I always actually go even further and I gather, you know, smiles for that. It's the biggest waste of money ever. I don't say that because I'm not concerned about the environment. That's not true. I say that truly from energy economic point of view. The numbers that you quoted, indeed, those were calculated by BCG. I used to work at BCG for over six years. And, uh, and McKinsey, which is higher number, also Would McKinsey has d- similar numbers. So these numbers are probably all underestimate the actual effort it would take to truly reach that result they're trying to. I don't think it's possible. But those are the numbers. And yes, that money is going to have to be raised from somewhere. And yes, that money will have to be spent on something. There's going to be people getting very, very rich of this. And where the money comes from? Well, a lot of it comes from taxpayers. Not all, but a lot, right? And where it goes to, well, it goes to companies who are basically providing a service that's in line with the policy, yeah, which is to reduce fossil fuels. What's interesting is that when you look at the IPCC numbers about what is the cost of climate change, but actually, the cost of climate change by 2100, 50 years later than 2050, is a portion. Is, is, is only a fraction of the money we're spending in the next 30 years to reduce the effects of climate change. So there's something is not quite adding up at the macro level. And today is not about climate change at all. Today is about energy. But it's important to understand this macro level and th- this effort we're trying to do has such proportions. It's beyond people's understanding. The numbers are so large. I mean, it's incredible. Think about that the global economy every year is probably a little bit less than 100 trillion right now, right? And we're going to spend, I don't know, 7, 8, 9, 10% per annum of our total GDP to try to transition away from our current reliable energy system into a actually less reliable and more expensive energy system. That is something which has not clearly hit even people in the energy markets, that the understanding that the move towards wind and solar system will significantly, dramatically increase the cost of electricity and cost of power. And think about what that means. Who will be hurt? Luckily, I'm well off. I can afford my electricity bill to try double and triple. So at the margin, the poor people will be hurt because the percentage they spend on energy is much higher than my percentage. And those people will have to spend much more. That means they're actually going to be starved of other things. And at the margin, they will actually be starved entirely. And then you go to the developing nation, to people who don't even have electricity, or people who just barely have access to power, they will be starved of energy itself. They will actually, at the margin, not be able to turn the lights for their kids to go to school or to learn at night, for factories to run. You can see in Europe, the so-called deindustrialization, a lot of high energy companies have left or are leaving Germany and Europe because they simply can't afford it. They cannot afford to invest into a market that provides medium term, the next five to 10 years, an unreliable, expensive energy system. There is an industrial component to this energy cost and there is very much a human component to this, which will cost lives, which will literally lost cost lives. Because when I am energy rich, I will live longer and healthier. There's no question about it. When I am energy poor, which I would be if energy becomes more expensive at the margin, then I will live shorter and have an unhealthier life.
1: Yeah, and like you were saying, that energy is the lifeblood of the economy. Energy goes into everything. So if energy is double, well then, doesn't that mean that basically every product and service would also basically be, at least certainly would go up in price. Your food would go up housing material, everything would go up. Your electricity bill would be raised, but so would everything else.
0: That's interesting. I had a conversation with someone at BCG, a Boston Consulting group, about that. And he was saying, look, Lars, energy is only 2% of GDP. So my co- if my energy doubles, you know, then okay, my, my total cost goes up a little bit. And he's right that actually so far, the energy component is percentage-wise relatively little. Like say, if I produce a car, like if my energy cost doubles, my car will maybe go up by, I don't know, 2, 3, 4% of, of cost, but that's only one part. Number one, energy actually, in my view, become much more expensive. Number one. Number two, the unreliability of it is a bigger issue and the human perspective, what it means to hundreds of millions of people who are poorer or just about trying to get out of poverty, right? The impact on the final goods in the economy might not be as much as it appears because energy is only a certain component of the total cost. But the impact on industrial operations as a whole, the shift of heavy industry towards China, towards India, towards lower cost economies, that will have much bigger economic and industrial impacts, which are not captured by this two, three percent potential end cost rise as a total cost.
1: In your book, you reference Professor Smill, who's maybe one of the most famous writers on energy. And you say in the book that humankind uses 17% of the world's primary energy supply to make just four materials, ammonia for fertilizer, steel, cement, and plastic, which of course are pillars of our modern civilization. You go on to say that not only are there no readily available substitutes for these materials, but there are also no practical low-carbon ways to produce enough of them to meet current demand, and the world is actually going to need to expand its production as Africa and Asia modernize. Do politicians and environmental groups and people that are actually putting in these policies, do they actually have any clue on how energy actually works on a scientific and physics level? I cannot judge what people know and don't know. I can
0: only tell you that I myself have known a fraction of what I know now seven, eight years ago. So it took me a lot of time and effort to have the understanding I have now. And I have only, even now, I believe I'm not far where I should be. I cannot judge anyone not having that view or understanding of how energy works. What I do judge is people making decisions with taxpayers' money on energy without educating themselves. That is where my tolerance is rather limited. So I don't expect everyone to be an energy specialist. I don't expect everyone to understand the whole thing. But when someone, either a CEO or a board or a politician or a consulting company makes decisions or recommendations, which impact people in terms of the spending, in terms of the cost of living and all those things, then my tolerance level becomes a little bit less available. So no, it's very clear. The people today have very little understanding of how energy works. I don't judge that. Think about it, 20 years ago, few people thought about energy, electricity came out of the socket, I had it, it was available, it was affordable, no problem. Today, it appears everybody understands how it works. We have to go to renewable. That's it, I know, I've been told. It's kind of the self-fulfilling prophecy of a lot of people not actually understanding how it works. And the specialists in the industry, in my view, are quietly kept quiet. So when I have discussions in Germany individually with professors at top universities, with people in the power industry, with people in the regulatory body, with people in the distribution, and even in the US, when I go to the US to the conferences there, one-on-one discussions, they're telling me, Lars, it's even worse than you think. As soon as two or three people are in a room, it's like, oh, there's a certain party line, we're all going to go green and that's it, and we're all going to make it, we're going to believe in the future, technology will fix it, and all those things. But it can't. So to take a step back, and that's, I think, the key message in my book as well, is what do we have to do? We There's an argument we cannot continue the way we go right now. And that argument aside, I also believe we cannot burn mm-hmm. fossil fuels forever because simply there will not be enough long-term. And I'm talking 100, 200, 300 years. 100 years probably easily, but maybe after 200 years. So we will have to think And invest in finding a new energy system. I'm all for that. And the nuclear force will be part of that, right? Fusion, fission, all those things. What I'm advocating is, let's invest in finding that long-term solution, which is affordable and reliable. And until then, until we have found a truly available system, until then, let's better put money into coal, oil, and gas to make it better, cleaner, and more efficient, because it provides 80% of our existence today. How can you take money away from something that your existence is based on instead of putting money into it to make it cleaner and better and more efficient? That misunderstanding, when I speak to people, people are like, actually, you're right. When I have a problem, I invest in the problem. I don't take money away from the problem. There's many, many reasons why you should do that, including some of the things we discussed already. Really incredible how that misunderstanding or that lack of understanding of how energy works, of course, guides... A lot of today's policies and of course there's a huge amount of politics in this there's so much money think about the money right when you, you go to europe and you look at the lobby people talk about the oil lobby the coal lobby and the gas lobby i'm like of course there's lobby but that is that, that that dwarfs that dwarfs the amount of money spent on wind and solar which is a fraction of these three when you normalize investments when you normalize costs on a per energy unit basis suddenly things look very different
1: right yeah the problem is the politicized of it with all the money that came in i had robert bryce on who's a i'm not sure if you know who robert bryce is he's also oh, no. an energy expert but he was saying that solar and wind get four times more federal subsidies and ngo money than nuclear gas oil combined when we had dr patrick moron you know i tell people we had patrick moron and they all like oh he's just a an oil and gas shell. They just like discount everything he says. But it's like, well, what about the people that are wind and solar shells? According to Robert Bryce, they have four times more money at their disposal. But no one ever calls them out for being a shell. Yes, yes. No,
0: it's true. That, that entire money component, the political component, is very, very difficult. Interesting one. And you know what? The world is like that and people say we have to change the way we live. Sure, fine, let's do that. But let's be realistic until then. Let's try not to kill ourselves and starving ourselves from energy. Look, I grew up in Eastern Germany. I grew up in communism and I know what it means to follow a party line. I know what it means when you have dreams about a world away from materialism, when you try to focus on your inner positive being of all the things we can do. Of course, we can dream and think, and I'm all for that, trust me. But we have billions of people who are literally just scraping on trying to survive the day. Yeah. That's what I think is often forgotten in all of this. And even in countries like the U.S. and Europe, or not—I mean, in North America and Europe and continents—you will see a significant amount of upsetness in the people, which is independent of the political side. We already see that the masses are kind of becoming more extreme, right? The people extremely green, and then the people apparently extremely old school fossil fuel, and and it seems like you know, instead of trying to get together and solve a problem. You're pulling ourselves apart and becoming more extreme. The U.S. being a bi-party system is a perfect example, right? The Republican was a Democrat. And in Europe, it's a bit different. You have many different parties, but they're all green now. So it doesn't matter actually anymore, unless for, except for a few, which are then right-wing. Yeah, but you don't want to be associated with either because they're right-wing. It's very, very difficult. Socioeconomic tension within the countries will increase. And that will cause also suffering, in my view. And extremism on both sides going to increase. Why else would you have people glue themselves onto streets or paintings and buildings? It's just terrible. What does it do? And these people truly in their heart believe they have no choice. Not that these are bad people, they're not terrorists. Or maybe they have become, I don't know. But they truly believe I have no choice. I we need to save the world. We need to do all this. Otherwise, we're gonna continue and we're gonna ruin ourselves. That is again out of being uninformed uneducated and being indoctrinated by the media and the press, which I have to blame a lot on this because the media and the press has not been impartial in this. And they have spent a significant amount of misinforming the population and have many journalist friends and they're all, again, good people, but very few of them truly have spent the time to understand how energy
1: works. My favorite quote from your book, and I had a bunch, but my favorite quote from your book was... If wind and solar were truly cheaper, in a free market economy, they would not require trillions of dollars of government funding or subsidies or laws to force their installation and utilization. Like you're saying, if it wasn't for the misinformation, the free market economy would take care of itself. In your book, The Unpopular Truth About Electricity and the Future of Energy, you say that in the absence of greenhouse gases, the Earth's surface would be on average, around minus 18 degrees centigrade, which is about minus one degrees Fahrenheit for my American friends. And then you go on to say, however, with greenhouse gases, the surface reaches a temperate and livable 15 degrees centigrade, or about 60 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, So in order to live on planet Earth, we clearly need greenhouse gases. It seems that Everyone has this, or to everyone, but a lot of people in the media make it seem as if all greenhouse gases are bad. But if we didn't have any greenhouse gases, we couldn't live on planet Earth.
0: I'm not an atmospheric physicist. There's people who understand it much better. But what I have learned and what I think is not in dispute is that without greenhouse gases, we would not be here. There's also no question that water vapor is the biggest and most important greenhouse gas in our atmosphere contributing, I don't know, maybe 90% of the greenhouse gas effect. And CO2 is a greenhouse gas. So I always say CO2 is a greenhouse gas. Additional CO2 will cause warming. Humans do cause warming. The world has warmed. These are all facts that are true. I am part of the consensus. The dispute is how much warming and how bad the warming is, right? And again, I don't want this today about those facts, we can discuss, and there's many back and forth, but I think it, it's clear that extreme weather events are not, have become as extreme as they say. There are extreme weather events, and some have become worse, but most and many have not become worse, such as hurricanes, they are actually slightly down, right? I lived in Singapore, where it is 20 degrees warmer, Celsius warmer than in Europe, quite happily and healthily. So to think that a temperature increase will only be bad is not correct. Because life needs warmth, life needs heat. And actually at the margin, as you know, actually it increases the livable temperature. Of course, you don't want people die of heat, but we also know that more people die of cold than of heat. So there are all these things which are not in dispute, but by just naming them, you're already a skeptic. You're already, I don't know, a denier and all those things, which I'm not. I am all for investing into reducing the environmental negative effect of providing energy to ourselves. Energy comes from somewhere. And taking the energy from somewhere will have an impact on our environment. It's our job to reduce that impact as much as possible by investing and finding solutions to minimize that. There is no net zero. Wind and solar, yes, the resource wind and solar itself is renewable and is free. So the coal or the gas in the ground is also free. It's also renewable, just takes 300 million or 1,000 million years, right? 1 billion years. But it's also free. We just it, But to take it out of the ground takes money and takes effort. And to collect the wind and solar energy available to us takes money and effort and raw materials and all those things. And when you put all of that together, you then have to look, okay, what is the most affordable and what is the most reliable? And what can we sustain long term? And we already discussed previously, I don't believe we can forever dig out fossil fuels of the ground. We have to find a solution and we will have to find we will find a solution, I'm very sure. But there's no urgency in doing this. And I certainly am against and about moving into something that doesn't work. And wind and solar has proven not to work in total at a grid scale. I'm not saying every windmill is bad and every solar panel is bad. There are applications where it makes sense. But at a grid scale, it is, in my view, very bad. Not only for the security of supply and for the cost, but actually for the environment because the amount of raw materials required to build all this capacity the amount of integration required to integrate this unpredictable, intermittent source of power into a system. It's mind blowing the billions of tons required for that. Let me share my screen again and show you another slide on this, which you might find useful, it's also in the book. Um, this is the world of raw materials of minerals that we are extracting from our ground over the past. 50 years, since 1970. You can see here on the left side, we saw about 30 billion tons of biomass, non-metallic minerals, oil, coal, and gas, and then there's metallic minerals we're basically extracting from the world. Today, we're probably at about 100 billion tons. When you think about it, this, by the way, the world population, at the same time, the world population more than doubled, right? From less than four to today, eight billion people in just 50 years. And this, by the way, is the mineral use ratio. That's the tons of minerals per capita. As the world uses more energy per capita to become better and richer, we also need more minerals per capita to live. And you can see this been going up. And of course, it must be our aim to reduce at least the mineral use ratio, tons per capita, if we can, or at least minimize the increase. So now think about that these 15 billion tons of fossil fuels, which include 8 billion tons of coal, these 15 billion tons of fossil fuels, which are basically providing 80% of our energy are required to actually harvest these other 85 billion tons of raw materials, like biomass, minerals, metallic and non-metallic. They need energy to actually be extracted and processed and upgraded. So this is what basically fuels all of this. And now the question is, of course, if you move away from a fossil fuel structure, yes, you will reduce this 15 billion tons, probably to some extent if you're lucky, I still question that if that's possible, but, but you would significantly increase the other portion, not only to provide the wind solar network integration infrastructure, copper, all those things, but also to provide the backup system. Remember that every single solar panel, every single windmill always needs a backup or storage, every single one. And who is building that and how long do they last? How often do they need to be replaced? All these things need to be considered. And that is something that is slowly starting to get into the scientific mind, so very slowly into the political mind, and even slower into the media mind. But it's interesting to understand these kind of metal, global
1: material aspects of the world. Yeah. When I look at the comments on my social media, when I post clips about, about hydrocarbons, fossil fuels, a lot of the comments, they, they seem to take offense with the word fossil fuel and they say it's outdated they prefer the term hydrocarbons do you think fossil fuel is an antiquated term or do you think it's still applicable or would you prefer hydrocarbons or do you think people are just taking offense to take offense with the term fossil fuel to be honest i'm not
0: worrying myself about definitions and terms in the end it is what it is it's coal oil and gas right and hydrocarbons is correct fossil fuel is correct What you want to call it doesn't matter. Hydrocarbons, actually more comes from the oil side because CH4 is gas, right? Or C2H is oil product, while C is only coal, so only the carbon is in coal. But in the end, it doesn't matter to me, honestly. And I can see that hydrocarbons maybe doesn't sound as bad because it doesn't have this fossil fuel coming like a bad term, but in the end
1: in your book you said something i never heard of before you say quote it is also undisputed though less known that the global warming impact of co2 or any other greenhouse gas declines logarithmically thus each additional ton of any airborne greenhouse gas has less capacity to increase temperatures can you explain how this process works When you look at the climate models, they always,
0: maybe you have heard the term climate sensitivity. I mean, few people have, but basically there's a lot of discussion in the science about climate sensitivity, which basically is about how much warming will a doubling of CO2 cause in a cause, right? Doubling of CO2 in the atmosphere cause. And that climate sensitivity by nature means exactly that. How much warming will come from a doubling of a CO2 concentration in the atmosphere? That means when I move today, we have, let's say, 420, let's say, simple 400 ppm. I move to 800 ppm, I have X degrees of warming. The next doubling is from 800 to 1,600 ppm. It's, again, doubling. So you can, right there, know what it's exactly what logarithmic means, right? It means that it's not growing linear, but it's growing logarithmic. So actually, it's very clear, the science is very clear about it, that the warming impact of CO2 with the declines, actually, of any greenhouse gas, methane, and, of course, water vapor as well. The fact is that we are quite far down the curve already. That means that the additional impact from CO2 is already quite low compared to what it used to be, let's say 200 years ago, when we had much less CO2. At the beginning of the industrial revolution, 200 years ago, we were maybe at 280, 270 ppm and there, an additional 10 ppm did much more than it would do today. So that's basically it. It's not, again, not a scientific dispute. It's just the fact of life that the more we have, the less impact it will have on warming. But I would like to remind ourselves from our biology class that, you know, what CO2 also does, right, It's the basis for all plant life on earth and plants need CO2, water and sunlight. The more CO2, the more, the better plants grow. So it's also no dispute about this. But again, by saying this, I might already be considered a denier, even though it's just something we learn in biology class, right? More CO2, more biomass, very simple. And NASA, World Economic Forum, There's no dispute that the world has become greener on average, despite the Amazon, despite the deforestation, all those issues we have, which are not great. On average, the world has become greener, partially because slightly warmer, warm is good for life, partially because we have more CO2, and partially we actually have also better ways of fertilizing our soil. I
1: always like solutions, not just problems. In your book, you've talk about the new energy revolution and you say that the new energy revolution is a point in time when humanity may substantially wean itself off fossil fuels such a new energy system may be completely new possibly a combination of fusion or fission solar tidal geothermal or a presently unknown energy source you also say that it will have little to do with today's wind and solar due to the physical limits of energy density space and their intermittency What is your best estimate of when this new energy revolution will start? And do you have any idea what forms it will take shape? I honestly don't.
0: I honestly don't. That's really impossible to predict. All I can say is that we all will be surprised when it happens. And it may then happen quicker than we think. Maybe some meteoroid comes down with some stone or some element we've never seen, never understood. I mean, who knows? But one thing I can promise you, whatever that solution will be, whatever that solution will be in the future, and I guess like 100, 150 years, that's why I believe in 100, 150 years, we have found a new clean way. It's just a personal belief. I have no basis for that. But whatever that will be, you have to consider what happens with all the energy. We're going to need so much more energy in the future, not only per capita, but also in total, because all the things, you know, today we have two phones, we have eight phones, today we have five computers, in the future we have 10 computers, it's just incredible how much energy we will need. What happens with all the energy? We know from our physics class that energy never is lost. Energy is only converted from one way to another, from one thing to another, right? So, in the end, all our energy that we consume or produce, everything ends up in, well, it's actually high entropy, low value heat energy, warming our planet. The more energy we have, all the energy we put up has to go out and, and end up in our atmosphere. And wherever the energy comes from, and of course, the argument, if I use solar and wind energy, I take the energy from the atmosphere and I give it back to the to the atmosphere. But there's many other issues. If I take energy from, let's say, from the ground, I take energy from the ground and put it into the atmosphere by warming it. Yes, that's correct. But nuclear, for instance, that's probably the most efficient, the best way. But nuclear is probably, in terms of warming impact, probably the biggest because there's no CO2 coming out. Because actually, CO2 coming out partially offsets the warming because, remember, CO two also creates a plant life, and plant life needs also solar energy. Because of that, actually, that CO two offsets part of the warming it has caused from burning the fossil fuels. So, anyways, what I'm saying is that this whole warming aspect is not going to be solved by that. I don't think it's going to be a big issue. I don't think it's a big problem. And of course, that portion, that energy we put into our atmosphere from our consumed energy, is a fraction of what the sun puts up. Right, the variability of the sun energy coming down is so huge. Think about one cloudy day or non-cloudy day, right? Where do you live, Jesse? Puerto Rico. Okay. So imagine Puerto Rico for a day or two days cloudy and temperature drops five degrees, eight degrees, if I'm not mistaken, maybe even 10 degrees. So you get a sense of how much variability and energy into our world we have, but just small changes in cloud cover in anything else that happens out there. But anyways, energy will warm our biosphere and we can see that Because it's always warmer around and in cities where we consume, produce a lot of energy. It's always warmer there. It's always warmer around my car, right? It's warm behind my computer. It's warm everywhere, wherever I I produce, consume energy. Like an air condition, heat comes out. These are the things that when you think a little bit further, it's like, "Hmm, okay, let's also think about that part. And that is not easily solved. But anyways, going back 100, 150 years, I believe we will have
1: found it. It might be in 50, it might be in 80 years. I don't think we'll be in 20 years or 30 years you're an energy economist and one of the things that bothers me first is just hypocrisy but i'm confused because we have these young people especially are trying to push these renewable energies but at the same time they want to have a more digital future and the digital future is just significantly more energy if you want to live in the metaverse and you have all these extra. Cloud computing and data centers are insanely energy intensive. The Bitcoin network uses more energy than the, the country of Argentina. Medical marijuana, the front range area of Colorado, which just relates really just Boulder and Denver, they use more electricity just in the medical marijuana sector than some entire nations in Africa. The iPhone or any smartphone, when you factor in cloud computing, uses more energy than a refrigerator and you know bitcoin is only one of thousands of cryptocurrencies i understand it's proof of work which does require more electricity than say proof of stake or something but if we want to be living in the metaverse and web 3 and all this stuff we need more electricity not less they say one thing but then they do something else i don't think people really understand if you want to live in the future that you say you want to live in it's not going to happen with these renewable energies. Yeah, I mean, look, the uh, what you're getting
0: at is this whole question about efficiency, right? People talk about that we will adjust our way of life and we will become more efficient in how we use the energy available to us. And we need to, we have to, because otherwise we're all in trouble. I wholeheartedly support efficiency improvements, wholeheartedly. But as you were just explaining quite nicely, that will not reduce the energy use per capita. So to believe that this efficiency increase, or efficiency improvement will solve our energy problem, will not. It will certainly make it easier or, or whatever. I mean, the growth will not be as bad, but if you look at the past, the world has always become more energy efficient in using energy over the tens or decades we even in the past, that's part of development. But at the same time, always something new comes There's actually called something in Jevon's paradox, which shows that basically practically every efficiency improvement you gain. Something else will take that up as has been his, his, shown historically. We don't know what the future will bring, but it's likely will remain like this. So that was what I started the discussion to say that this energy demand increase per capita, because of population increase, in my view, cannot be avoided. A- a- energy efficiency will not solve that issue. And secondly, when we talk about energy efficiency, I always point out, guys, don't only talk about efficiency in using energy. Start talking about efficiency in producing energy, because people completely forget that. It takes energy to make energy. And that is actually the basis, also what my book is about. It's called Energy on Investment, E-R-O-I, that you, know, you need to become more efficient in producing energy. It's probably even more important than this part, or at least the same, or difficult to say. But no one talks about this. And this is exactly where wind and solar fail exactly where wind and solar fail because it takes so much energy input to get energy output. That is why I say if we were to go wind and solar based on today's technology, the world will starve itself of energy. That is why I cannot support it. Not because of green this and green that. I'm all for green. I'm all for green. But it's purely economically. You are starving the world of energy and you can actually see this in the world. People are talking about energy starvation, energy shortages, much more than they used to five years ago. Why? Because the wind and solar penetration has reached levels where it's becoming problematic in Europe and other parts of the world. That penetration level is now so high where this energy inefficiency, this efficiency of freezing energy is actually becoming apparent And to the shortages of raw materials. Also, does energy it takes energy to get the raw materials out, right? It takes energy to transport, energy to make, energy to have a backup system, to have a storage system. To distribute the energy, energy is becoming a starved or short good, something that we need more of or that we don't have enough of. And of course, the Russia-Ukraine crisis has sort of accelerated this process, but the energy problem did not start with Putin. Putin accelerated it. You can see yourself, just look at the past. We had problems a year before nothing to do with Putin. What you were saying about digitization, that's just one aspect of why we need more energy. We're going to fly to the moon. We're going to discover new things. We're going to go deep into the ground. All of these things are going to require much more energy than we use today, despite the improvements in efficiency and all those things. I mean, of course, my smartphone today is much more energy efficient than any phone 10 years ago, but still uses more energy because it has so much more
1: functionality, right? Can you talk a little bit about the grid in your book you say quote a functioning electricity system can supply usable power if and only if electricity demands equals electricity supply at all times every second i was reading the book the grid which was recommended by i believe bill gates i was surprised when reading that book it talks about having like a wind turbine so if the grid's on all of a sudden a big wind storm comes through basically it's like essentially turning on a nuclear power plant and that the book i think was saying that it's actually more dangerous for the grid to have too much power than not enough and then of course in washington with all the dams with all the regulations on the fishing industry and things like that if you have too much water you can't just turn this stuff off because maybe it's salmon season or something like that and so you have to get rid of all this extra electricity, but then if you have subsidies like in Texas where you have these wind farms, you can't just turn the wind farm off because then they're breaking some contract. I don't think anyone really knows anything about the grid. It's a very complex, but it doesn't seem like it's a very stable system. It seems like stability is the most important aspect to having a grid and these renewable energies, solar and wind, because they are variable and intermittent and probably more importantly, they're unpredictable. You don't know when a windstorm is just going to come forth. Can you kind of talk about that?
0: Honestly, um, I also lack a significant understanding about how the grid exactly works. Of course, I've learned something about it, and I understand a little bit about it. And so, in Europe, I think we have fifty hertz. You guys have sixty hertz in the U.S. If I'm not mistaken. So basically, this is three thousand or three thousand six hundred RPM. So that is actually what a turbine runs. The current goes up and down. That's basically the frequency that you have in the grid system. Historically, you have a gas turbine, even today, and that provides a constant energy supply. Now, here on the other side, let's say you have 10 washing machines. They're all running. They require a certain amount of electricity and they will then take that up. Now, if we turn all this off, this supply will have to come down at the same time. If it doesn't come down at the same time, the frequency goes up high, too high, and that will actually cause the system to collapse. The other way around, if I have more demand here, have not enough supply, because it goes too low. And if it goes too low, the system will also collapse. In Europe, I think if we go from 50 Hertz to 49.5 Hertz, we already have to have scheduled load shedding. I think if we go at 49 Hertz, blackout, out, gone. So it's not much what it takes. And the issue what the book grid was referring to is if you go high, you actually will start to to destroy some of these big machines, these big turbine machines, right? They will literally just like run out. They're they're gone. They're they're destroying. And there will be explosions of those. And that will have, I mean, physical impact, and of course, even the system. And exactly as you were saying, the more unpredictable wind and solar you have in the system, you have to now balance these huge ups and downs very, very quickly on a second-by-second basis. And of course, that balancing capacity... Is there a lot of let's say water hydro is usually use, pumped hydro is often used for that purpose. But that pumped hydro has only so much capacity, it cannot do the entire system. Because it's never never designed for the industry. the system was always based there's nuclear base, then there's coal and gas, something else here, and then at the top, you know, maybe the gas usually is the peak up and down. So that's historically our systems are worked, and now you have this huge up and down, and you have so much coming in that that actually every additional solar panel will only cause damage. So once, once you have so much penetration in the system, so much capacity in the system, at some point, every additional panel or wind turbine will actually cause only damage. Because it's so much on top and we have no way of taking this off. And people talk about storage. Look, what we'll do We'll just store it somewhere. We don't have a storage system now. Batteries are a disaster for long-term, not impossible for long-term storage. People talk about hydrogen. There is no hydrogen today. There's 100 million tons of hydrogen being produced. I think 99.94 million tons is possibly fuel-based. Even if you did have it, it would not run efficiently because of those few minutes where you have oversupply, then your electrolyzer is supposed to work efficiently. It doesn't work. It's very, very complex. Keeping that system stable is something that took a hundred years to build. Okay. And now if one system breaks, or let's say a power plant breaks down, then they take these islands, they then cut off these islands. That's when the island, let's say a part of the city is then black out, right? load-shedded, but it's protected from the other on the outside to keep the other system stable because if you were to connect it to the system, then everything would break down. So there's these islands that are basically built around supply and demand. And if something bad happens, you turn them on and off and then you try to synchronize them back on. And then once they're synchronized at the same frequency level, then you can actually connect them again. I mean, it's amazingly complex. And again, my understanding is only a fraction of what it should be. And I'm sure there are specialists, which I highly recommend to you from the network agencies to invite those and explain it better to you. You get the sense that the complexity is much more than it seems. And rarely is this talked about. And this complexity of integrating wind and solar, so it's this network integration is much, much underestimated in terms of what it does to the system, the costs involved, and all those things.
1: You're a consultant. You've mentioned that you worked for the Boston Consulting Group before. By reading the book, it seemed like you do meet with governments and certain influential people. I mean, what are some of the conversations that you have? And do you also have hope that they will do the right thing and it's not just about the money, that they will make these decisions that will benefit the power system and humanity? And I just have these carbon taxes and just tax people to death.
0: So, yeah, maybe a few words about my background. I've spent the past 20 years in the commodity trading industry. We are trading a lot of coal, but also ore products. I always give the disclaimer. I come a significant portion of my time is spent in the coal markets. And that's probably the worst of everything, right? Obviously. So I am biased. And I always warn people do not trust anything I say. Read it up yourself. Check it if I'm making mistakes. Interesting is that actually. Our business will strive the more wind and solar you put up, because the more wind and solar you put up, the higher the cost of electricity will be, the higher the cost of raw materials will be, the more money I make. So it's actually interesting that I'm negatively incentivized to talk about this compared to some other people from the wind and solar industry, but I am biased very clearly. Now that is, by the way, that's why I'm saying it, that's why so much exposure to the world. So I am traveling in Asia, Africa, Americas, Europe. Every second week, I'm globally, I'm talking to ministries, to government agencies, to industrial operations, to mining companies, to finance, to banks. I have luckily a huge amount of exposure. I mean, thousands of people that I've met over the years in the energy industry. Now you talk about what's my outlook, what's my hope. I'm a positive person. I believe, I mean, not not I, I know the world will continue. I am concerned that the world will continue on a path that will increase cost of energy and reduce the liability of energy. That I think is unavoidable in my view. I am trying to advocate to reduce that impact as much as possible. So for instance, I spend a lot of time in the developed nations and African nations or Asian nations, Bangladesh, Pakistan, all those places. And when I speak there to the ministries, I try to explain to them, guys, this is what will happen if you continue on this path. This does not mean that you should not look for green solutions. I'm just telling you, what the basis of your development is. And then, of course, money comes into play with governments. There is the World Bank, the UN. I mean, it's amazing how much pressure from the Western, so-called, you know, Western governments come onto these developing nations. But I see that in my day-to-day life. I see large industrial companies in India and China that I meet, that we supply to. I see in Africa how they make decisions, oh, we don't do coal, we do gas, we don't do gas, we don't do oil it's incredible the amount of exposure I have to that. And I have to say, I am concerned, especially for the Western world, because I believe the Western world will suffer first. But indirectly, the developing nations will suffer as well because the cost of energy will go up so much. I fear that a significant blackout event will happen at some point in the Western world. That will, of course, be in combination with an extreme weather event. I can promise you when that happens, it will be, Blamed on climate change, right? But that is not the case because any of these events we've had in the past—they have been terrible winters, they've been extreme winters, extreme warm events everywhere—and it's not about how often they occur. It's when they occur. Is a system energy energy system ready to sustain that? Germany is now at a level where it's becoming just, yeah, getting to the edge of reliability. Let me show you one more graph about Germany, which maybe illustrates the issue about this that actually is also in the book. I always like to show the example of Germany. On the left side here, you can see the installed power generation capacity over the past 20 years in Germany. You can see that we used to have 110, 115 gigawatt of installed capacity, which was back then in 2000, 65% based on fossil fuels. So it was uh, lignite coal, uh, hard coal, and uh, gas. Then there was 12 gigawatt of wind and solar back then. There was 22 gigawatt of nuclear. So 20% nuclear 65% fossil, and 11% wind and solar. That was the electricity installed capacity system of Germany 20 years ago, beginning of the so-called energy vendor, energy transition. Today, we have probably 240 gigawatt of total installed capacity in 2022. You can see that wind and solar grew, like basically we have more wind and solar today than we used to have in total. That you can see, right? We have more wind and solar today installed capacity than we used to have in total. Fossil fuel remained actually the same slightly increase in the source 20 years, funny enough. Nuclear is being turned off now, I think in April, the last nuclear power station is going to be turned off in Germany. Now, this is just the installed electricity generation capacity in Germany. Now, this is the power, total power production. So from this installed capacity, you can see that practically we've remained unchanged in how much electricity we produce and therefore also we consume. It's more or less the same, right, obviously. So you can see that with this huge increase in in, in, uh, installed capacity, we managed in 21, 28%, roughly 30% coming from wind and solar. So this doubling in installed capacity managed to reduce my fossil fuel burn and now makes up 30% of total power production. Now, when you put the primary energy, total primary energy, which includes transportation, which includes heating and industrial, You can see that wind and solar made up 5%. After 1 trillion of investment, probably more than that in total, 5% of total primary energy was replaced with wind and solar through this large build-out. You can see now that the total, I don't see it, but I can tell you that basically the peak demand is about 80 gigawatt in Germany. So the peak demand is about 80 gigawatt. So 80 gigawatt is just about the fossil fuel capacity. Nuclear is going to be away. And fossil fuel is the only thing that's really reliable, you can rely on, but right? everything else depends on the weather and there's no backup system. You can see now that the reliable supply is getting actually just at the level of peak demand. There's no more margin for error. There's always a 20% safety margin that you have or should have an electricity system. That safety margin is gone in Germany. That is exactly what now actually even McKinsey just a few weeks ago warned. We are going to we don't have enough reliable power supply anymore. That is what top university in Europe have warned years ago already, that we're running into a system where we're going to run short. This peak power demand has to be met in the worst case by something reliable, which is basically fossil fuel and nuclear. If that's not there anymore, and there's no wind and solar at night, and there's no wind, then we're going to have blackouts. And that's what's going to happen. It's going to happen at some point in the near future in the Western world. Now imagine what will happen in developing nations. I mean, right now they don't all even have yet reliable power. When you move to that, and when you compare reliable installed capacity versus peak power demand, that's what you have to compare. Now we used to have twenty percent more. Now we're just getting down exactly that level, and we don't have enough margin anymore. And that same will happen in the US two three years later. The same thing will happen in the US, right? And that will happen worldwide. And that is why I unfortunately foresee these blackout events happening. I hope they will not be too bad. In a way, I should hope they happen early and just a little bit to warn people, but I question the interpretation. What will people say when it happens? Ah, now you see that is the climate change caused by fossil fuels, so we have to transition even faster. That's what you actually see now in Europe. Asked an event at the International Energy Agency after the Putin war, And I asked, okay, so now Europe is short of gas. There's serious issues about supply of other energy. So what do you as the IEA recommend to do? What's your way out? And what do they say? Quickly install more wind and solar. Right? I mean, that is what energy agencies, economic institutions of the world, which are today very political, are telling the governments. The governments are being advised. By politicized consulting groups who I cannot say they don't have any, they don't have enough of course they know what they're talking about. And actually when you read the IA reports, you can see that they know exactly what's gonna happen. But somehow they are afraid to say that out loud and to really warn the people of that. And now when I saw McKinsey writing this a month ago, I was like, wow, it's the first time I have seen any large consulting company actually calling out guys, we're going to have a problem. I hope that these things somehow are being heard, but I question it's going to make a big difference.
1: (laughs) Yeah. The problem is there's just too much money in these renewables. Warren Buffett and even when Robert Bryce was on it, they said you'd be stupid to invest in anything but solar and wind, because that's where all the money's at. Lars, thank you so much for joining us. I want to respect your time. The final question would be, if you were in charge if you were the one that was able to make these decisions, what would a path forward be to actually be able to have a stable energy system and have something that is environmentally beneficial, or at least not as environmentally destructive? What would you recommend that these politicians and think tanks and NGOs actually implement?
0: We kind of touched on it before, and also my book talks about it. But basically, in my view, it's two things. Number one, we have to invest in that energy revolution. We have to invest in finding that long-term, reliable, affordable way of producing energy. Producing energy is kind of like you produce power. You don't produce energy, right? So we need to invest there. As we said, it's a combination of fusion fission, energy within our planetary system. I mean, it's basically solar energy. There is a huge amount of solar energy. If we find a really a way, I don't know how, but if we find a way to really harvest that reliably, that would be great. But again, solar panels are nothing to do with that. And then there is that there's so much energy geothermal energy within our planet, right? There's so much still that we have not yet harvested. I'm sure it will be a combination of those things. Plus, then I always say the Mars man will come and bring something funny or something we have no idea. We have to invest in that. And then when we have something that can do, we have to try it out. We have to build capacity, see how it works, all those things. And until we have the solution, we have to invest in what we have today, which is our primarily fossil and nuclear-based and hydro-based system. We have to invest in that to make it better, cleaner, and more efficient. Think about when you have a coal-fired power station that has, let's say, 35 36% efficiency, and you just improve by 1% the efficiency. You have just reduced your emissions by 3%, right? Because only a third efficiency. There's so much we can do with investment, but Germany, number one in doing this, has stopped. There's no more there's no more teaching, no more education of people to actually improve thermal thermal operations, all those things. I mean, in Vietnam, you go there, there are three universities who do that, right? So the, the, the Western nation, we're starving ourselves of talent to do that improvement. So yes, that's the second thing, to invest in our existing energy systems to make it better and cleaner and more efficient. Not take money away. As everyone says, the UN says, Warren Buffett says, everybody says, take money away, stop investing, stop doing this. Banks say that. And when I go to banks, I'm like, guys, are you serious? Are you really saying it is correct to take money away from 80% of energy supply? Do you have any idea what this does? How can you truly support such a policy? And they look at me, uh, yeah, hmm. and of course, one-on-one is like, we know it doesn't make sense, right? I mean, so it, it, it's just incredible how you can, I mean, it, it's, you are seriously endangering life. You're killing millions of people. It's incredible. And I don't understand, I shouldn't say that, but how can we get to where we are today by not taking a step back and like, guys, what are we doing? So yes, invest in the future. Until then, invest in what we have. Stop investing in wind and solar immediately. Stop investing in hydrogen immediately. It's very inefficient. Take all that money away and save people's lives. Er- eradicate poverty. Solve health issues. I mean, a fraction of the money is resolved required from that. That's my recommendation.
1: Lars, you're the co-author of the book, The Unpopular Truth About Electricity and the Future of Energy. Where can people find you? Where can people get the book? If they want to read the book, I certainly would highly recommend that they read The Unpopular Truth.
0: Yeah. Thank you for your recommendation. So it's very simple. It's on Amazon. It's available in German and English. It's now available also in Vietnamese. It will be translated to Korean. But basically, Amazon is easier. There's a Kindle version and a print version. I was trying to work on an Audible. I haven't yet managed but I'm sure if you just type my name, either on YouTube, you find it, you find me and you find some of the YouTube videos I've done, or if you just type my full name and the book name and you, on Google, you'll find it easily. But Amazon is the easiest way to get it. It's very quick and it's relatively easy read. So it's not a huge, big book. And I believe it will make a difference to your understanding about how energy electricity works
1: thank you so much for joining us. I learned so much from your book and from this talk today. I appreciate you spending the time with us and really educating people on the realities of energy. Thank
0: you very much, Jesse. Pleasure for, to, have, to be with you. And thank you for your time and effort in, in, in putting this out.
1: And that is it for this episode of El Podcast. Once again, if you're new to the channel and if you like the podcast, please consider subscribing on YouTube. You can also find us on Rumble and download the podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. We thank you so humbly for listening to the show. Uh, Feel free to comment uh, if there are certain topics that you'd like us to cover or certain authors that you'd like us to invite to the show. And with that, we'll see you on the next episode.